Oh, Sarah. So you mentioned, um, I think towards the end, that when you're ruling over someone or in charge of someone, you don't want to do that um, as a tyrant. Um, and you gave the example of with being a parent, uh, you don't want your kids to obey out of fear for you. But I'm wondering, how do you communicate consequences to someone without the fear being the consequence and having them obey for the right reasons? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I wish there, I'm sure there is a better way. I couldn't think of it to try to verbally distinguish between terrorizing, intimidating, and ruling that way, and yet communicating warnings and communicating consequences. Because I do that all the time with my kids. Um, I remember Friday night, we were going to go to beggar's night, and my um, third youngest, Talitha, was a hot mess. She was crying because she couldn't find her fork. It was right in front of her. I, mean, she, I think she didn't have a long enough nap, and she was just a hot mess. And I was thinking, I don't think I'm going to send her out like this. <laughs> so I pulled over my knee, and I get her on my knee and say, Talitha, you need to get it together. Let me pray with you. But then I wanted to make it really clear what the stakes were. Talitha, if you can't get through dinner, like you need to keep it together. If you can't get through dinner, I can't send you out trick-or-treating if you can't get through dinner now trust me that was a big consequence to her and i was telling her not to threaten her but to try to motivate her like she ended up going out she got it together um but making it clear so that if this bad thing happened she saw it coming and and so i wasn't it'd be different like you don't i don't and i have a hard time putting into words the distinction between i'm just trying to terrorize you versus i want you to understand what's at stake um, I want you to understand there's consequences here that if you can't get through a meal in your house, I'm not sending you outside to the outside world <laughs> to, to f fall apart and, and lose it out there. And so I, I sat on my knee and I gave her a hug and I said, I love you. But here's what's going to happen if you can't do this. And she got it together. I wasn't sure I could tell either she's waking up poorly or she had a bit of a cough or she's sick. And so, if she, yeah. Um, so I, I think... Maybe maybe someone else can help with this. It's it's tough because we talk about maybe I'd use the word warn, and I'll use the word threat. But see, warn and threaten are you know um, are are frequently used with overlap. And I mean, anyone else? This is my failure with words. Can anyone else put into words the difference between? Because I think you can have a firm hand. I think you can like this is what's going to happen, you know. Um, and yet, my goal isn't just to scare you. My goal isn't to um, make you afraid of me. And that's primarily what Paul's condemning is this, this rule through you will fear. I mean, wasn't it Stalin who said it's better to be feared than loved? You know, there's, a, there's a leadership mentality that follows that. And uh, that's what's to be thrown off. Um, anyone want, you want to? Yeah, I, I'll just throw out that I think the difficult part is you should live in a fear of the Lord. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah. But don't put that as you should also live at, through a fear of me. And I think I struggle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, being that, no, you will do this because, and putting in place, you'll do this because the Lord says that I will rule over you and you will listen to me. And, and drawing that line back to the to God, not I'm your God, you'll listen to me. You'll do it because of God, not because of me. Right. So I think that's where that. It's. <laughs> You can threaten them with the fear of the Lord, but not your personal. Another example. All my illustrations come from my kids, just about. But 
there are times where I'll send my oldest out to pass on a message to the littles, littler ones. And I can tell, it's, it's hard to put in words. I can tell when he's carrying it on as a steward, hey, Zadik, daddy said you need to come in. And when he's, he's enjoying being in charge and he's barking at them. And yelling, I mean, I can tell when he's functioning as my steward and when he's thinking he's little Lord Fauntleroy. Again, I don't, I think we all know what I'm talking about. I, I, I'm not, I'm unaware of a good vocabulary word to describe the difference, but that's, I think, the distinction, which is where I think the key is you got to view yourself in that framework. I'm a man under authority. I'm exercising authority. And what does my master think of my exercise of authority? Would he be pleased of my exercise of authority? Or would he think, because we got parables like that, right? The reason I said Luke 12 is, turn, turn to Luke 12. This is another, I think, helpful picture of this relationship. So in Luke 12, Jesus um, answers Peter's question. 40, 41, Luke 12, 41. Because um, Jesus tells the first parable about staying ready. And the master leaves and the servants, some are asleep and he comes back and some are ready and there's a blessing and there's a curse. Peter says in verse 41, Lord, are you telling this parable for us all? Um, and the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? Now notice this manager is also going to be a slave in a minute. So, so there's a household where all the members of the household are servants or slaves, and yet there's still a hierarchy within that, that household, right? So who's the wise and faithful manager whom the master, the master will set over his household to give them their portions of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant, doulos, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if the servant says to himself, my master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, he starts getting drunk on his own authority and, and privilege. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So that is, I think, the proper way to view our exercise of, of authority is that there's a master who's coming who's told me how I'm to rule. He's told me how I'm to parent my kids. He's told me how I'm supposed to uh, shepherd and lead my wife. He's told me I have leadership in this church, you know, and all of that I'm told and I'm under orders, under authority, how I'm to exercise it. And there'll be an accounting and there'll be a reckoning. And if I can keep that in mind, hopefully it stops me from, you know, thinking too highly of myself and walking around, you know, um, that's, the, I think that, I think the real challenge the help is Paul's thing, knowing, bearing in mind, we all have one master. Whatever our relationship is, we're all slaves of one master. And he's going to give a reckoning, and he's not impressed by senior pastor. He's not impressed by, you know, what school I went to or whatever other thing. And if I can bear that in mind and I can exercise authority and faith, then I think all is well, you know. Uh, which is the other point. My authority, whatever authority I have, is not to serve myself. My One of the things I like an authority to is biblically authority is meant, as modeled by God in the first instance, to cultivate, promote, to create, cultivate, and promote life. So God is the ultimate authority. What does he do? He, he makes the world. He makes the animals. And he makes the man and the woman. And he puts the man and the woman into the garden to rule the garden. What's their job? To, to, to cultivate it. They're gardeners. What's a gardener do? The garden flourishes. So they're given authority over the garden for the flourishing of the garden. Then God gives kids into my home, and they're under my authority. To what end? That they would flourish, develop, grow, right? 
So the authority that I'm given is not an authority so that my life's easier. If that happens, it's a byproduct. I mean, trust me, now that Abner and Sophie can like watch kids and change diapers, there's a blessing there, no doubt. But that's not the fundamental reason God gave me kids was so I could do less work, right? <laughs> he gave me kids and put them under my authority so that I can raise them up in the, the nourishment and admonition of the Lord. Um, and so the, I used this in an illustration, I think, two or three weeks ago. Like when I go to the dentist, I place myself under the authority of the dentist. They tell me to open my mouth and say, ah, oh, I open my mouth and say, ah, oh. they turn, turn left and spit, and I turn left and spit. Why do I submit to the authority of the dentist? Because they're helping heal, serve, promote the health of my mouth, right? And if you have a surgery, it's the same thing. You're going to let this person knock you out. You'd be helpless. And you'll gladly, if you have the right need, let them knock you out, put you under a table, completely submit to them. They'll cut you. You'll bleed. They'll Why? Because they're promoting your health. So you recognize that when somebody is serving you, you'll place yourself under their authority. That That's the right use of authority. It's right understanding. Um, and it's wrong when we use authority fundamentally so I can sit back, put my feet up, and, uh, okay, go get me this, go get me that, go do this, go do that, as if it's about me. So I think that's partly also what it means to do the will of the Lord from the heart is to recognize, okay, I've been given the stewardship. Now, that doesn't mean if you're a, a manager in a business that you don't want your your workers to be productive. Of course you do. You know what I mean? But it's getting back to motivation and why. Does that make any more? Did that help at all, or did I just go off on a rambling tirade? I do do that from time to time. Um, Daniel, my wife, Dave Lample, Jacob, they all tell, well, the list is longer than that, but I'd ramble again. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts with that? Oh, Caroline. Is it Carolyn or Caroline? Carolyn. Carolyn. I was wondering if, because the scriptures are given here for us to see, we're to model this because this is how the Lord would want us to see him. I mean, this is who he is, and therefore, as fathers, you're to lovingly discipline your children and care for them. Could threaten then be a word or even an action that you would take that would almost say, my authority hasn't yet been understood, therefore, I'm going to threaten you with this. I think God doesn't threaten us. He tells us, to do something for our good, and he doesn't need to back it up with a threat because we know what will happen for the consequences. So, And yet there certainly are passages that sound like threats. It depends how you define the term. Because so Jesus says, you know, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. Why? It's better to go into life without an eye or a hand than to go into hell with your body whole. Well, there's a very real way in which there's a threat included in that. You're going to want to take this seriously. You're going to want to fight diligently. You're not going to want to wimp out because life and death, heaven and hell is at stake, right? I mean, now what he doesn't do is terrify us with these threatenings and just constantly, you know, that that's, again, the difference. I, I'm struggling with, like, vocabulary of how to express the difference because he'll lay it out. Like, this is what's going to happen. Um, and, and constantly, even in, in the Old Testament, here's life and death. Before I set you life and death, the blessing and the curse, choose life. But there's a whole chapter in Deuteronomy, the curse, that you'll, it's a threat. 
in the sense of it's a consequence. It's not a threat as I'm going to scare them into doing what I want them to do. You've entered into a covenant with me. Let me tell you what, what covenant faithfulness looks like and its results and covenant unfaithful looks like and its results. This is what I'm going to do. And he does exactly what he says he's going to do. So, um, but yeah, that's a good example that as we are slaves of God, to whatever degree we have authority and we're someone's master, we ought to model, they ought to ideally learn something true or see something true about God's mastership in our mastership, right? Uh, I think that's implicit in the argument as well. Masters, you have a master, act like he acts. Be righteous, be just. Um, have the well-being of those under you. I mean, how, I mean, Jesus is the ultimate example of that. He has our well-being so much he dies for us. He becomes, a, according to Philippians 2, becomes a slave, uh, taking on the form of a slave. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, okay, model that type of rule, masters, right? So we get the, we're made to image God, to reflect God's glory, and in various roles, we can all do that. In one sense, um, all of the relationships in the household code can do that. The first two are where Paul explicitly says, okay, wives like the church to Christ, so you submit your husbands. Husbands, as Christ died for the church and suffered for her, go serve your wives. But children, Jesus is the perfect child and son, and we see his obedience to Mary and Joseph, and we see his obedience to his father. Okay, children, imitate, reflect that. And Jesus became a servant and a slave. Okay, slaves, you can model after that. Masters, you have a master in heaven, model. So, in all of this, we have the opportunity to display God's character and not display God's character. So, oh, okay. I'm just just rambling still. Sorry. Any other questions or thoughts? So I want to I want to go quickly to uh, to James one again. We're going to be starting our study of James here sometime. Um, well, my head's been so stuck in the uh, household code, I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through the armor of God, the spiritual warfare. I'm guessing probably at least a month to get through the rest of the book. But, um, and then, God willing, we're going to start James and Psalm 119 concurrently. And um, so we're going to get to James 1 here pretty quickly. But here, here's one of the things that's remarkable is that not everybody needs the same encouragement. Because depending on what you struggle with, depending on your position in life, um, you may struggle with different things. I, and our, our culture is obsessed with um, commendation, approving, uh, praising, support, self-esteem, all, all wrapped up into that. And there certainly, I think, are some people who need that. And I think this is the point here. There's another danger that you can get drunk on it. I, I, I fear in many instances our culture's gravitation, the fact that the American uh, church gravitates far more to Christians sitting on gold thrones with crowns on their head than they ever would identify themselves as a slave of God in Christ probably means the balance is off somewhat. But look at that passage we read earlier in James. Um, let the lowly brother, verse 9, James 1, 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So I take that to mean some people who are the, the bottom of the barrel in this world, the lowly, the poor, the despised, they may do well need the encouragement of you are beloved. God loved this world so much that he sent his son to, to die for those who would believe. 
You've been adopted into God's family. You're destined for glory. You're going to reign with Christ. That, that may well be what they need to hear. The rich, on the other hand, um, probably don't need to hear that reinforced as much as understand the futility and the um, impotence of all your wealth and power could accomplish you nothing. You needed another to die for you. And your wealth and your power is like the, f- the grass of the field. The sun comes up and it vanishes. And, and you, you may well need to be reminded of that. And so it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach to um, counseling people. Um, go, to, uh, go to 2 Thessalonians. I'll give you this example again. Um, 2 Thessalonians. Ooh. Let me get there. I'll tell you. 2 Thessalonians. Uh, is it, no, it's 1 Thessalonians. Sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5. There it is. Okay. Um, Is it? Hold on. This is terrible. Um, Cars the faint-hearted, admonish the idle, be patient with them all. It's either first or second Thessalonians. Um, where is it? Five twelve. There we go. Thank you. First Thessalonians five twelve. Okay. Now notice again. There's not a one size fits all treatment for people in the body. Um, we ask you, brothers. Five twelve. Second Thessalonians five twelve. First Thessalonians five oh fourteen. Fourteen. There it is. Sorry. Good grief. Get your act together, Jeremy. We urge you, brothers. Now look at this. Three different classes. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. And so one of the, the challenges pastorally when I'm dealing with someone, am I dealing with a stubborn, lazy person who needs some challenging, potentially even rebuke or admonishment. Am I dealing with, I love the Greek here, literally the faint-hearted is the small-souled. Encourage them. Help the weak, people who want to do what's right and they just don't have strength, they need help. And then I'm to be patient with them all. The temptation for me is to rush to judgment, size someone up in two seconds, I know who I'm dealing with. No, be patient. And so... From this and other passages, we need different words of encouragement, different counsel at different times. I just think it's interesting that given, not that slave of God, slave of Christ is the only category, by any stress of the imagination, it's not. But it is a major one. It's not one that just shows up once or twice. How little of a resonance it has with the evangelical Western Christian identity. I mean... It's, it's not the type of thing that I, I readily get people resonating with. I've never spoken to someone. They've identified themselves as, as a slave of Christ. And so I tend to think we, we need to counterbalance probably more in that direction than we do that we're going to reign with the king, by and large and in general. Any, any thoughts on that? That makes sense? Um, yes, no, blank stares. Okay, this will be a long ABF. Linda, you got nothing to say? No opinions? Come on. Okay. Okay, that's just going to go. Fair enough. Okay, any questions about the household code in general? We can sort of do a summary of all three categories of relationships. Um, anything from that? Because now that we've got children's church, I can't let you guys go early. Well, 
not not those of you with kids. I can't. Um, any questions from that, or anything in general at all? Oh, Jordan. Could you explain again why you felt like the ESV's rendering of bond servants is unhelpful? Um, because well, bond servants really not a word till the NASB made it up. I mean. Okay, so the trans- here's the here's the dilemma translators have. Doulos means the key concept of doulos that servant m- misses is owned, not free to leave. A servant can quit his job, as I understand a servant or a server at a restaurant. And so a doulos has a master. The doulos kurios relationship is is really clear. Now the reason you can I think I read the front of the ESV's forward to the translation philosophy they don't translate it consistently slave because primarily of associations with American slavery because the slavery in the first century in Rome was not race based it wasn't chattel slavery it wasn't necessarily generational slavery many people would get out of it by their way out of it and so their concern is Americans westerners here slave and we think antebellum south and that would be a wrong application. That would be wrong. Um, however, weakening it to servant is going to bring in all sorts of um, wrong ideas as well. So Jesus' statement, no servant can slave, serve two masters. Well, I, I know plenty of people who have two jobs. Why, why can't a servant have two masters? Why can't I work both at Quick Trip and at Walmart? A slave can't have two masters. The logic doesn't make any sense unless that's in place. So I thought it's more beneficial, and I wouldn't be using the term slave as freely if we hadn't two weeks ago spent an entire message defining, we're talking about first century slavery, we're not talking about antebellum slavery. This is the assumptions that are in place. Here's what we can glean from them in the New Testament. So basically, let's educate the hearer to know what's being meant by the term. And now that we know what's being meant by the term, let's use it freely. That, that's my, my rationale. Um, I, I understand the dilemma they're in, and I would prefer where I can, and in this context like this, I can educate what is meant by the term and then use an inferior term that's going to have weaknesses. We just don't have a term for, I mean, first century slavery. I mean, we could fill that in or something. But um, that, that's, that's, the, that's the idea. But the key concept, and this, this, is, this is huge in a number of categories, the property, bought, so you were bought with a price. That's slave language. Like the, the whole metaphor of redemption, of being purchased, is being bought out of the slave market of sin. And that picture doesn't work if your servants aren't bought, right? So I'm trying to preserve these, I think, powerful pictures that are meant to be understood that due to our language's weakness can be lost. That, that's what I'm trying, primarily trying to bring out. Um, and because I tend, I know my own life, I know my own life, my biggest danger with faithlessness is rarely high-handed rebellion. It's, it's rare that I'll raise my fist up to God and say, you know what, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want. Forgetfulness and living like I'm my own master, oh yeah, that happens all the time. Where I just do what I want to do. And what I want to do frequently isn't all that bad. What I want to do is, you know, surf the web, drink a coffee, do what I, just do my thing. And so I'll get through like three quarters of a day before I ever think there's a Lord and Master who wants me to do things. And that's just like a wasted day. Um, that's that my, my proclivity 
to think that I am free in that sense um, is so natural. I need these constant reminders. I'm, I'm somebody else's. I, I'm under another will. I have a master. I, my, my responsibility is to accomplish his will. He's a good master. His burden is light, right? But I have that. So I know in my own life, I need that reminder constantly because it's so natural for me to think, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And because I've been a Christian for a while and my, my appetites and desires aren't as, I mean, I used to be whatever I wanted was drunken debauchery back as an unbeliever, right? But now if I do what I want, it's not so obviously corrupt, right? Um, but I'm supposed to, whether I eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. You cannot passively do anything to the glory of God. If you're not intentional, you're not doing anything to the glory of God. If you're not, your will has to be involved in that. So that's a sort of bit of a long answer, but that's, that's why. But, I, but that's also why we spent nearly three-quarters of a message three weeks ago defining the term in the first century in the Scripture so that when I could use it more freely. Does that make sense? So I would not just go without the opportunity to do what I did three weeks ago. I wouldn't as freely hammer the term today um, because I do recognize the tension the ESV translators are wrestling with. Um, okay. Any other? I just oh, looked yeah. it up in Merriam-Webster. Yeah. Bond so, servant is a term? Is that what you're going to Bond servant is a term. Okay. Coined. I think it's more of a just a PC thing that they did uh, for Americans okay. because the definition is one bound to service without wages, also known as slave. <laughs> Clever. Okay. What's its origin? Did they say where it first appeared? I, I could have sworn I heard somewhere that the Nazbe basically... First known use of bond servant was in the 15th century. Okay, yes, it was not the American standard. Fair enough. Hmm. Okay. So, um, so I have a question. Yeah. It's me right here. Oh! Over here. Right here. Hey! <laughs> I have my own mic. Um, so a few, two weeks ago, you were talking about... Um, spirit-filled slaves of Christ and talking about point number two, the manner of obedience. One of your sub points was it is rooted in a desire to work little, right? The hypocrisy and trying to impress and you're trying to get away with a bare minimum. Um, could you speak to maybe the warning of working too much? Um, because, you know, just from my own personal experience, um, you know, I've got, couple of um i'll just call them role models i guess in the hierarchy that just constantly work um and so uh, being under their authority sometimes puts yeah you get where i'm going with that no no i get where you're going it's tough even going to through seminary they'd have guys who just would uh look up to and it's good i mean in one sense we're told to um are told to consider the manner of life and the faith of those who taught us and, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And you find out guys like Al Mohler sleep four hours a night. <laughs> and there's a rare breed of people who can do that and be very productive. I am not one of them. But there are, and our professors would be like, you're, you're probably not one of them either. Um, but there'd be guys who would try to do that. They'd almost think it's like more spiritual to like, if I can get down to sleep three hours a night, that'd be even better, you know, because they want to be productive. Part of this gets back to recognizing all of life as stewardship. So in Psalm 90, the only psalm in the Psalter that Moses is credited with authorship of, 
He goes through the difficulty of life. If you read it, this would be a great prayer. You could pray. One of the, oh, you did already. You already did some that, didn't you? Yeah. And he goes through how difficult it is and how our, our life is but a breath. And, and, and we're sinners and there's life's difficult and there's God's um, judgment on that. And then he says, give us a heart of wisdom that we might number our days. And, and the Hebrew is really divide, make a portions out. The challenge is I have multiple stewardships. I'm a husband. I have a stewardship of my wife. God has commands and expectations for me to fulfill there. I have a father. I have a stewardship of my children. Um, I have a stewardship of my home and property. I have a stewardship of my position in this church. I have a, and that's once it's just my performance. And then as a shepherd, I have a stewardship of those under my care. I have to watch for, um, I need wisdom to know how to divide up my time. And God expects me to endeavor by faith to fulfill all those responsibilities. And it's too easy to say, okay, I'll do two of those a lot and completely neglect another. So part of that is sitting down and saying, how much time should I give? How much of my attention do I need to give to these various things? Um, our professors in seminary would frequently give too much homework. Couldn't be done to force us to sort of learn triage. <laughs> well, at least one or two of them freely admitted to that. Like, oh, yeah, no, I want you to learn how to prioritize. I mean, so I had to learn how to, like, write the best paper five hours could write and say, I can give five hours to this paper. That's all I can give it. I got to do it diligently to the glory of God, right? But I, I can't, if I give it 12 hours, I will neglect something else. I'll neglect my marriage. I'll neglect my health and my sleep, right? So there can be extraordinary circumstances when there's a crisis where you change that and you, you get very little sleep. You know, some, there's a family emergency, someone's sick, someone dies. Fair enough. But. Um, we need to learn to ask God for wisdom, to sort things out, to seek wisdom and do that. Generally, when we're putting too much effort into one thing, it's probably because we value it too much, in which case we've probably adopted some wrong values. Um, it's easy to see how wanting to excel at work could serve either as a desire that finds security in money, a desire that finds identity and worth in um, success, um, in um, even wanting to be away from the family. You may prefer throwing yourself into work rather than the hard work of parenting or husbanding, right? So if, if it's out of whack, I'd say maybe some of your motives for why you're doing too much of this are wrong. And then seeking some counsel. Part of this would be praying through with your wife, like do, where do we need to divide up our time? I mean, I, when I do premarital counseling, that's one of the things we talk through is, figuring out how to not neglect one thing over another. Okay, you'll be newly married, and you'll be just wanting to absorb yourself in each other. And so you got to find time for church. you got to find time for rest. you got to find time for service. you got to find time for, um, obviously, work. And you gotta, you'll got to you have to make and adjust and readjust and re-re-readjust until you start to find some place where you think you're being faithful in everything. So... That's, again, getting back to stewardship. I'm under orders. I have responsibilities. God, give me wisdom to know how to portion my time out. And then be willing to live with it and just say, if it's not an emergency, um, I mean, it's, uh, I, I, I got to learn to, to protect my time off. You know, if I'm taking family time off, it's, I got, unless it's an emergency, give me a call tomorrow. You know, I got to learn to do that because this is the time we set aside for rest and for family. And I got to learn to do work the church when I'm here and, you know, and, and make those divisions. 
Is that going where you're going at all? Or No, it, it totally did. I, th- I think, too, so on the back side of that, you know, if we're to submit to our authority and we feel like there's a heavy, heavy workload, you know, sure, you're going to have seasons and deadlines and things that you're going to press, but uh, the conversation with the um, – I mean, what's the biblical approach to a conversation with a supervisor where that's the case? I'd just make it clear. Um, well, I'd make it clear I'm, I'm not willing to give this much time indefinitely. If this is a, a difficult season, fine. If this is what you expect of this position, I might need to find a new position. I'm just letting you know I'm not willing to give you 65 hours a week. Not indefinitely. Tell me it's just for this summer. Tell me it's for the fall. But if that's really your ex- expectation for this position, I might not be a good fit for this position. And and Or that would be just coming at it not demanding anything or saying, hey, is there any way we can readjust this, but this isn't working. My marriage is suffering. My, my life is suffering. And just being willing to say that and trust that God will honor that. Now, maybe your employer says, fair enough, you're fired. You know, but it gets back to I'm, I have a higher authority than you. I have a higher authority than my boss. It's God. And if, if you're neglecting the responsibilities you have, um, I mean, I've seen elders step down from eldership to deal with wayward children. I mean, praise God for their faithfulness to do that. But, like, you got to have your priorities in order. And if your marriage is suffering, if your home life's suffering, go work at Casey's and get that stuff in order, right? I mean, or go work at Walmart and get that stuff in order. Do whatever you got to do. Take, take, God will honor your desire to honor him with your time. Um, so that, that'd be my response would be if, if you find your work schedule un, unworkable, this happens a lot with people. They'll, they'll ask to get Sundays off and their employer will not promise to give them Sundays off. They'll say something like, well, we won't call you in very often. Very quickly they do. And then you got to say, look, this isn't working for me. Um, so either, so you just go respectfully. Don't go belligerently and say, Hey, I, I'm not willing to give up this many Sundays. No, you can't be belligerent. Sorry. But no, but this is, and again, this is the thing, like, we're not slaves. We live in a country where work's voluntary. And, and it's, it's, it's a voluntary agreement between the, the employer and the employee. And so, you know, if you've, ideally, if you've been doing good work, you'll be a valued employee. And so when you come reasonably and respectfully and say, hey, I got a problem here. Um, can we figure out some way to make this change? Um, hopefully they'll hear that. Now, maybe they won't. Maybe they'll be like, who are you coming talking to me? But there's a living God who'll take care of you. And if you're trying to honor him and be obedient to him, I'm going to trust he's going to take care of you. Um, yeah. Anything else? we got six minutes. You guys are, you guys are all wanting me in Jake's class. I know. It's okay. Anything else? Oh, Lin- oh Linda, then... Kevin in the back. In that order, too. We'll close us out. Yes, Linda. Okay, so back in the uh, Old Testament when there was the year of Jubilee, okay, so did that language change because those people were no longer considered slaves, correct? They would then become free, but if they chose to go back to that master Put because the it was all a- through their ear and the doorpost in front of witnesses, yeah. The, there's, there's. Um, I've heard some people say that's bond servant. I, I think that's a preaching tale. I, I think as Jamie brought up, it's just it's another word for slave. People have used to say that. 
Um, and, and part of it is we don't have a big vocabulary for slave. And in other nations, in other languages, there are bigger vocabulary. Um, I'm just going through the New Testament. There's, there's a much broader vocabulary. Um, and um, so people use bond servant more for the all through the ear. That's absolutely a different category. But it's just a slave who's chosen to be a slave for life. Which, again, tells you how different the circumstances were that people might voluntarily do that, you know. Um, but, no, it's, it's frequently said. I don't think linguistically that's its origin. Um, but prove me wrong. Check me out. I, I'm not certain on this. Kevin, bring us home. Uh, this is kind of back to um, the conversation earlier about how we uh, parent or um, uh, as bosses, however you want to look at it. But I'm going to speak through my own experience and that as a parent, my early years of parenting were more authoritative and emotional type of authority, um, which did not work at all uh, at least biblically it didn't work um, so I think our attitude about how we parent and how we instruct and like you said earlier lay out the expectation is all about how we bring it across and even explaining our our motives behind it uh, help us stay in direction of what we're doing and also help them whoever is under your authority understand where your motive is coming from instead of just bringing it across emotionally and uh, almost um, aggressively uh, just it helps it be received in the right and biblical way a amen amen let me, let me piggyback off of that and say one of the clearest ways you can show your children that you get this is when you sin against them, and you will, apologize and seek their forgiveness. It's hard. I just had to recently do this. Um, we were cleaning our house in preparation for my sister and her uh, husband's visit, and I was just starting to get stressed out and barking at the kids, and it was really clear to me. Um, I took a break, and it was really clear to me. They're just running around because they're scared of making me mad. And I pulled them aside and I apologized to them. I said, I'm sorry. I hope you forgive me. Now, we need to clean this house. And there will be consequences if they're, if you aren't diligent at working at it. But I'm not going to get angry. I'm, and and I, there's at least a shift in my attitude where instead of you, you know, fall in line to I want you guys to succeed. And I'm fully prepared to bring discipline if you guys are negligent, lazy, and, and you know, just goofing off. But... It stopped being, I hope, about me and my wrath and more about, uh, at least in my head, I'm falling back. I'm a steward. And this is what we need to do. We set aside today to clean the house. And these kids need to be obedient to clean the house. Absolutely. But um, I certainly think in the beginning of the morning, it was about King Jeremy and his wrath. And <laughs> But if you will repent to your children when you wrong them, and you will. You speak to them in anger. You speak to them harshly. You speak to them... Um, in, in, in ungodly ways seek their forgiveness confess it or even more stinging if I sin against Serena with my tongue in front of them I've made a point to tell them daddy was not kind to mommy and I was wrong and I asked mommy's forgiveness and I want to let you know it was wrong and I want to let you know I've asked her forgiveness because I mean, my kids hear what I say I mean you guys at least don't have pulpits um, 
and then they see what I do. <laughs> and they're aware of the disconnect, right? And I need to make it clear to them that I am really under authority and that God's word is a higher authority, that it's not just something I say and I do something else. So th those, I think, are some of the important ways we can make it clear we all have various levels of authority under a king. Um, at least that's helpful for me. And with that, we're at time. God bless. Godspeed. Have a good day.